Do you know what is the most terrifying thing about preaching? It is the week before. God woke me up at 4 a.m. on Tuesday morning, and I got this sense that he wanted me to rewrite my sermon from a different place. I had been working on this for a month, periodically a few hours here and there, and in the past two weeks, I had really struggled pulling it all together. It just didn't seem like it was clicking. I would pray harder and read more scripture and sit silently, and as the deadline was approaching, I became increasingly anxious. On Monday, I was nearing the end of writing, and in the middle of the night, out of nowhere, I was laying bug-eyed awake in bed. So I got up, prayed, and sat at my computer as God downloaded in bits and pieces over the next couple of days a revised message. I've learned over the years that when God asks something, that my kicking and screaming no longer works. Not sure if it ever did. He is a good dad and has taught me a lot about obedience, especially in the past 12 years. I just need you to know this before I begin, because this better be good. And if it's not, you can't blame me. I have to admit, I am a little scared that God is going to wake Mike Krause up next Tuesday morning and say, hey, Soph, hey, Soph's got this one too. All right. So this morning, we are talking about home sweet home with a question mark. We are going to have an open and honest conversation about family. One that I feel internally like I am the least qualified to be delivering at this time. But isn't it so true that those are the moments that make us the most qualified, forcing ourselves to be fully dependent on God right in the middle of our own brokenness? So before this turns into a ball fest, let me show you some pictures. Pictures of perfect families. Check these out. The We Are So Close family. The one, this one is for the older crowd. Never understand these. The We Are So Fun. The athletic family of the year photo. The perfect blended family and the all-time, one-of-a-kind, perfect family right here, the Adamas. Okay, so can we get real for just a minute? Yes, it is true. We have amazing times with our families, and it's good, really good, to capture those moments and celebrate them. So please keep taking photos and remembering the precious moments with your families. They are gifts from God, and you need those for the other times when your life looks a little more like this. Is this your family? Have you ever felt like this? Definitely us. That feels familiar. And the grand finale, an up close and personal look at the Adamas on a road trip about three years ago where we challenged each other to make the ugliest face we could so that I could use them for a sermon one day. This one's for you girls. Happy Mother's Day to me. Andy Stanley, the lead pastor from North Point Community Church, did a sermon a couple years ago where he talked about a tension that exists in families. The tension is that there's the ideal family and there's reality. He talked about a gap that exists and it's one that's not exactly expected to be filled. The gap is living in the real. He goes on to say that many have fallen short and will fall short when it comes to following 
Biblical Teachings on Family. The question is, are we willing to embrace an ideal that may never be a reality in our current family? This is how we want to spend our time together over the next couple of weeks in this family ministry series. We want to talk about living the real while pursuing God's ideal for our family relationships. For the next 25 minutes, I'm going to, I'm going to commit to being honest about the messiness of family. And I'm asking you to join me in being honest about your own. I think we can all agree that there is no such thing as a perfect family, and we don't do anyone any favors by pretending that we have one. I will be using examples from my family life because that is who God has and is using to transform me. I do not intend to offend or exclude any grouping of people that considers themselves a family, and I would love it if you could take what I say and make the adjustment to apply it to yours. It is more important in the short time that we have that we don't miss what God may want to say because we get caught up in the stories that don't relate perfectly or by passing judgment on me or anyone else that is here listening to this. I'm asking you to listen for yourself and only you. This will allow us to individually focus on the heart of this message and God's words directly to you. We are all a work in progress and trying to figure out what it looks like to enter into our own family messiness. Deal? I don't know where you are coming from this morning. You may be living in a season of life depicted in the first set of photos where family is fun, exciting, and conflict-free. Or you may be here today carrying pain from present or past family life circumstances or somewhere in between. Regardless, we are all part of a family system, of some kind of family, of, of a family system of some kind. And family is messy. Adam and Eve's family was messy. Remember their son Cain? Killed his own brother. They came from the garden with no generational sin. The Old Testament provides us with lots of examples of marriage and family life, but almost always what we seem to what we see seems to fall short of the ideal, and we read about as we read about in Genesis 2 of the creation story. Shortly after, we see human relationships damaged by the fall where sin entered the world because of the choices Adam and Eve, and let's be honest, we would have made the same. And from there echoes the breakdown of the first family recorded in biblical history. By contrast, the New Testament gives us little practical examples and instead more teaching. What we see in the Old Testament on marriage and children has slipped slightly into the background, not because they are no longer important, but because the gospel is. Jesus entering the world in the New Testament seems to change things in a significant way. Instead of addressing the mess of Old Testament families with all the rules to address human sin, things shifted. For example, in the New Testament, the acceptance of divorce in certain circumstances, permission to eat meat, and circumcision no longer being a requirement, Jesus still sets before us the ideal upholding and emphasizing that all was good in creation. Because of this, we no longer live by Old Testament law or rules in the same way. 
By grace and as followers of Christ, we can make a choice to pursue the ideal that scripture teaches. Over the next few weeks, Mike, Beth, and Jeff are going to walk us through some of those rich teachings from the New Testament. Our prayer is this series is to help us all move just a little bit closer toward the ideal that God is inviting us to. Last year, as I was in a breakout session at a family ministry conference in Atlanta, the speaker was talking about research in relation to the state of marriages in churches. We've all heard the statement about 50% of marriages ending in divorce, both inside and outside the church. But the speaker was talking more about those that were presently in marriages. He suggested that 10% of marriages are struggling. 80% are surviving, and 10% are thriving. He went on to say that churches spend the majority of their time and resources helping the 10% of struggling marriages. He was recommending that churches begin to be proactive with the 80% of those that were in the middle bracket of surviving to help launch them into thriving or prevent them at least from falling into the category of struggling. The more I thought about this, I began to wonder if those numbers might be true for families too. How many of our families feel like they are just surviving these days? What would it look like if we were to tweak just a little something in our family relationships to launch us closer to the ideal that God has in mind for us? Before we go any further, I want you to take a minute to identify in your mind a critical family relationship in your life right now, a sibling, parent, child, or spouse, the relationship that God wants you to focus on making as healthy as possible in this season of life. When I say critical relationship, I'm not necessarily talking about bad, although it could be. Just one that you are sensing needs a disproportionate amount of time and attention. For me, God has placed Madison, our youngest daughter, on my heart as the most critical relationship at this time. She is leaving the nest and heading to university in less than four months. My relationship with her is changing. We are transitioning out of 18 years of adult-child relationship, and that can be tricky. My desire is to do this the best that I know how, which may be limited based on her two older sisters' experiences. Like I said, we are all a work in progress. I would like us to enter into the rest of our time together prayerfully, keeping the relationship that you are thinking of at the forefront of your mind. So let's take a minute to quiet ourselves, giving over these relationships to God. I want you to pray for yourself and ask God to open your heart to what he has to say to you. God, speak to us this morning. Give us comfort in the safety that you provide. Direction for decisions that need to be made. And courage to change what needs to change. Speak to us this morning. Amen. Every relationship is in progress and always moving. 
Gary, Dr. Gary Chapman uses seasons to describe the different emotional states of relationship in his book called The Four Seasons of Marriage. He suggests that relationships are perpetually in a state of transition, continually moving from one season to another, maybe not annually as in nature, but just as consistently. Sometimes we find our relationships in winter having negative feelings, detachment, and dissatisfaction. Other times we experience spring with its new beginnings, openness, and hopeful growth. On other occasions, we bask in the warmth of summer, deep closeness, comfort, and mutual, mutual satisfaction. And finally comes fall with its unwanted changes, growing distance, and feeling of uncertainty. The cycle repeats itself many times throughout the life of marriage and families, just as the seasons repeat themselves in nature. Now let's go back to the relationship that you chose a few minutes ago, the one you are sensing that God wants you to focus on making as healthy as possible right now. How would you describe that relationship? And what season would you say it is in? In order for us to continually move to the ideal in any of our family relationships, we need to assess where they are at in order to be proactive about improving them. This requires time, effort, and a desire to change. I can remember a time not so long ago, our marriage being in a winter season and wondering if spring would ever come, feeling hopeless and disconnected and negative. We had allowed ourselves to drift from each other, living independently under the same roof, gradually growing distant. We first had to acknowledge it, then we needed to figure out what we were prepared to do about it. This was going to require some action on our part. We had some choices to make. After assessing where we were at, it was time to put a plan in place and get back to the regular date nights that were being canceled consistently. We needed to restructure our time together so that we were not spending that time talking about kids, finances, or work. We need to get out and just have some fun together. And finally, our marriage needed a fresh vision. That meant spending some time reading a book together. It also included more visits to our counselor to get back on track to prioritizing our marriage. It's funny because after 23 years, we know all this. We've had these structures in place before and with great success. And then life just gets in the way. Sometimes there's seasons catch us off guard with an unexpected crisis, a new baby, or just plain laziness. Like any relationship, unless we put intentional effort into it, we will spend a lot of time in the fall and winter seasons. Can I just make a quick comment about counseling? There are a lot of people that have an allergic reaction to it. It's called pride. And if you are in relationship with someone that is requesting some time to have a third party speak into your relationship, would you please humble yourself and get the help that you need? And if you are the one requesting the counseling, ask God to create in you a clean heart and make sure you are going not to prove that the other person is the only problem in the relationship. It is scary, I know. When I turned 40, three and a half years ago, 
My overarching goal for this decade was to be healthier physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. I had no idea what I was asking God for. I am so naive at times. But one of those things was randomly following up with a counselor. I've had to get over myself and sit my butt down in a chair to talk through my own junk. And I am telling you, it has been the hardest and the best thing for me. So that I could bring my gradually improving healthy self to each of my relationships. A relationship is only as healthy as the least healthy person in it. And you may go ahead and debate who it is, but that is not going to get you anywhere. When I sat in that chair to face my own demons, it was terrifying, humbling, and one of the wisest choices I've ever made. I see counseling like this. We take our cars in for oil change, we put filters in our furnaces, we go to the dentist, all as preventative maintenance. Do not wait until your relationships are over. There does not have to be a major crisis. Do prevention. If you are stuck in your relationship or you keep having that same issue rear its ugly head over and over again, stop blaming someone else. Fight for the ideal that God has for you as a whole person. All right, now that I said that out loud, I'm going to need every therapist's phone number after the service for referrals. When our girls were young, there was this bizarre trend that was beginning to happen. A young couple commented that they wanted their family to be like ours. Just so you know, this feels really weird telling you this. But you will see in a minute where this is going. It caught me off guard because we weren't really doing anything that we were aware of to make them want that. We began having couples ask if we would be in their will in case something happened to them and their children needed a place to live. I think I was most surprised when on moving day from St. Catharines to Vineland, our neighbors came teary-eyed over to my sister-in-law asking if she would give a message to us. They wanted us to know that they were going to miss us as they loved watching us interact with our girls. The weirdest part about that for me was that in the four years we lived there, I could count on my hands the times we had a conversation with them. Later, other couples began to request to meet with us to talk about parenting or marriage, some requesting formal mentoring, and others just wanting to pick our brain about a specific parenting topic. And these were not always people from church. The public school principal randomly called one day and asked if we would take a teen girl in for five months while things settled at home. As recent as 11 p.m. last night, I got a call from parents who we met through sports only recently, who were afraid for their daughter and invited us into their pain and struggle. It started to become problematic as the girls got older and their friends would joke about being Adama wannabes and would request to live with us. For those of you that know Sal, he keeps asking if we will take him in as a foster child. Love that kid, but he is my age. Over time, God was using our family in this weird way, where random people were regularly requesting to be a part of it. It still catches us off guard at times. 
My response was, and still is, laughter. I tell them that they don't, and our girls will tell you the same. I don't know what kind of Pinterest-perfect family messaging we have been sending, but I'm here to set the record straight. Our family is messy. We have struggled and survived through seasons of cancer, depression, multiple ADD diagnoses, teen sex, drugs, binge drinking, self-harm, fostering par foster parenting, and ministry life as a woman. And that is only the past six years of our small family of five. All of which has taken a toll on our marriage and the relationships with our children at different times. According to the statistics, being married at 19 and 21, as Andrew and I were, with a newborn 11 months later, we should have both opted out of our marriage by now. We were too young. Research has now shown that our brains were not yet fully developed. Brain development completes itself at 25, and I still remember growing pains in my legs when we got married. We had no money, and as highly educated high school graduates, we, we had all the odds stacked against us. But by God's grace and intervention in our lives, time and time again, and through courage and strength that only comes from God, we made choices along the way to persistently fight for the ideal. I would be a liar if I said that there were not seasons that I wanted to quit. Quit being a wife, quit being a mom, quit being a pastor, and quit being a Christian all together. And this is coming from someone whose second highest strength is positivity. I read Donald Miller's newest book, Scary Close, kind of unexpectedly, while I was on vacation. I had only borrowed it for one chapter about parenting and was captivated by it, and I ended up reading the entire book. It was quite timely, as the whole book is about dropping the act and finding true intimacy. The fact that I was going to be talking about the real and ideal of family life made it even more significant. There's a lot of books and research coming out right now about vulnerability and authenticity. But Donald writes, the stuff it takes to be intimate is authenticity and vulnerability and a belief that other people are as good and bad as we are. He says these values contribute to healthy families, marriages, and parenting. He also wrote about noticing a common characteristic of healthy families. Parents who aren't trying to be perfect or pretend they are perfect have kids who trust and respect them more. It's as though vulnerability and openness act as the soil that fosters security. I think I had just discovered what it was that made our family attractive to other people. It was not our perfection. It was our mess. That was affirmed time and time again. This week, in my preparation for this message, I experienced this as our girls entered into their teen years. When I nervously shared with them some of my past, 
so that they could learn from my mistakes and that they did not have to be perfect. I really did not want them to experience the kind of guilt that I carried with me for years that almost kept me out of ministry. I also knew intuitively that if they messed up and they were going to need a safe place to work through that, it would have to be our home. I remember after sharing this information for the first time, telling my daughter that I was not sure if it was a good idea that I had told her. She thanked me and said, Mom, that actually makes me respect you more, not less. The minute someone is open, real, or vulnerable, it allows others to do the same. There's this temptation when you realize that your family relations, relationships are not quite how you thought they should be. When our reality seems like such a far cry from the ideal that we so desperately desire, we can become disillusioned. In, this moment, in those moments, we have a choice. We can choose to lower the standard of the ideal so that we feel better about our situation or we can become apathetic and just tolerating things, saying that's just the way they are. I'm going to suggest that those are not good choices, so let me give you an alternative. If we are following Christ, we are pursuing an ideal. The ideal is to be like Christ, who is perfect. We know that we are not perfect and won't be on this side of heaven. And yet, we don't stop the pursuit to be more like him. As we each do that, we simultaneously engage our families in a different way. At that point, you're choosing to pursue the ideal of living fully devoted to Jesus. If we protect the ideal, it gives us hope as we live in the mess. Striving for the ideal is acknowledging that things are not right in the world and yet living with hope that there is a better way. The better way is moving more and more toward the ideal in all of our relationships. And the one and the onlooking world notices before you do. Because it makes a difference in how you relate to your own family and others' families, making it safe for them to engage in a relationship with you. You may say to me, but you have no idea what it is like and how bad things are. And you're right, I might not, but God does, and there is comfort in knowing that he is fully and completely understands every detail of your life and how bad things are. I say that coming from a place knowing full well that there are things that only God understands about my life right now, and I have to rest in that. I have to trust and I have to hope, because without hope, there is nothing. So what do we do with all this? I could give you a list of resources and examples of things that I have tried and tested and more stories of what I've learned. And I may write a news post next week on that for you. But truthfully, the thing I know how to do best is to seek God on behalf of our families. It is not my job to convict you. I'm just a tool. I say that loosely. That was a word we used to use in the 80s and it's not a compliment. But God decided to use this week to help you enter into a time of seeking him in the specific relationship that you identified earlier. 
So let's once again take another moment to quietly seek God on this relationship and ask him for guidance on what you need to do next. God, we beg for your mercy, healing, and freedom in our lives. Protect us from the need to be perfect, from being prideful and living for ourselves. Humble us, Lord, to serve our families well so that we can be just a little closer to the ideal today than we were yesterday. Our hope is in you. Amen. At the end of the day, I am responsible for directing you to the ultimate teacher and counselor that I know, God himself. If there is one thing that I would want you to know is that living in healthy family relationships requires a whole lot of seeking God and humbly placing yourself before him before anything else. That does not mean it will always get better, but you won't be doing it alone. Again, I will say, I believe God is inviting us to continue to fight for the ideal for our, aunt, for our families while living in the real. I am sensing we are in a season as a church that needs a whole lot of hope. There is rarely a week that goes by that I don't hear about another marriage ending, about family members not talking to each other, abuse taking place in homes, kids feeling abandoned, teens feeling alone while wrestling with their sexual identity, women feeling that they're not enough, and men thinking they don't have what it takes. And often these situations lead down a road where people ditch their faith or give up on the possibility for healthy relationships. The burden that I carry as a family ministry pastor is heavy for families. I know I don't carry it alone. It is shared by a team of staff and volunteers who weekly show up to our program to love kids and youth and married couples. Whether they know it or not, they are fighting for the ideal while living in the real. Let's continue this week to seek God in the relationships that we identified today. But also, can we commit to seek God this week on behalf of families in this community? We need you to stand in the gap and, keep, and help them fight for the ideal. Let's not leave a generation behind us to pick up the pieces of our relational baggage. My hope in sharing this message with you is that it normalizes your life and lets you know that you are not alone, that you are in a community that is living in the real right alongside of you. Don't give up. Hang in there, and I get it. God has a word for you today. I know he does. It's hope. This is to my spiritual family. If I have ever given you an indication that my family is perfect, 
I am sorry. I love my family more than words, as you do yours. But sometimes I love myself more. I know that affects you. I will continue to celebrate the gift that God has given me and my husband Andrew and our girls and promise that you will see more imperfect family photos. Because I do not want to be part of a community that acts or thinks they have it all together. I want to be part of a spiritual family that embraces the mess and loves through it, as Ephesians 5, 1 in the message says. Watch what God does and then do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents. Mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loves us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. This is to my family of five. Our family is far from perfect. But one thing that I know is true. is that we are committed to pursuing the ideal regardless of the real. I know this because of the commitment that each of you have made to counseling, speaking up when you're hurting, acknowledging things that are not going well in our family, and loving the best we know how as we are all in progress. I thank God that he has let me live out the real with each of you. And this is to our foster boys. Our family is forever different because of you. You have taught us to depend on God in ways that we would not have done without you. You have taught us to trust God in new ways as we have watched you embrace and trust complete strangers. Your childlike faith has inspired us and you bring so much joy into our home. And this verse is for you, Romans 8:35. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are the persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger? or threatened with death. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Boys, you are conquerors. And let me finish with this prayer over you from Romans 5, 2 to 5. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, 
because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with love. Amen.